0: Welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place Right Crime. I'm your host Frank Zafiro and this is an open and shut episode with Barbara Necklace. Now, I first met Barbara at the Vancouver edition of Left Coast Crime outside the bar, chatted with her for a few minutes, and she invited me and my friend Colin back into the bar to sit with her and Deb Koontz, and uh, I learned a heck of a lot about the business from from her, and especially from Deb, who's uh, very well-versed in those matters. Uh, So, she writes a, a police officer who is railroad police, which is not something that you see very often, so had fun uh, exploring that with her. Uh, but before we get to Barb, I do want to remind you that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the grittier and darker end of the spectrum. Uh, if you like that, and I'm guessing you do, you can check it out at their website. That's at downandoutbooks.com. Down and Out Books, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books take the journey with us. Uh, So without further ado, let's dive in and talk to Barb. Well, hello, Barbara, and welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Frank. Glad to be here.
0: So I met you for the first time at uh, the Left Coast Crime uh, last year uh, outside of the bar.
1: (laughs) Yes, normally we meet inside the bar, but yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I recall uh, chatting with you and then you dragged me and quite willingly dragged uh, me and Colin Conway in to sit with you and uh, and uh, Deb Koontz.
1: Yeah, it was fun getting to chat with you guys. I mean, that's kind of kind of the big plus of these conferences, isn't it? You get to meet readers, but you get to meet your fellow authors as well.
0: Well, and you get to find out things about people that you might not otherwise know, you know, I mean, that might might not make it into their bio. I, I will say, though, your, your bio is different than most and that you have an absolute uh, laundry list of diverse things that you have done in the past. And if we could take just a minute, I'd like to bounce through those real quick and hear a little bit about them because they're fascinating to me. Um, sure. The first one on your list, it says you used to be a raptor rebuild. <laughs> Let me try that again. It says you used <laughs> to be a raptor rehabilitator. Now, aside yes. from being a bit of a tongue twister, what is that? <laughs> That's the whole purpose.
1: Um, so I started out working with a master falconer, John Carger, um, at the Renaissance, Colorado Renaissance Festival And that's where I started learning the ropes to rehabilitate birds of prey who have been poisoned or struck by vehicles, um, sometimes raised as pets, and they're severely disabled because they were kept in cages that were too small for them. So I then from there moved down to the Pueblo Raptor Rehabilitation Center and got to work
0: with the birds there. Wow. So it's kind of like a bird rescue type of program.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the whole point is to try to get them back in the wild, except for those who cannot fly. Um, And then those are used for educational programs.
0: Well, it also says you did a little bit of teaching, um, specifically that you were an astronomy teacher and a piano teacher. Uh, (laughs) Not at the same time, I don't think, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Uh, No, you're correct. The astronomy teaching came first. Um, I finished my English degree and went back for physics and started working at the Colorado Springs Astronomical, um, well, the Black Forest Observatory with the Astronomical Society. Um, It was the largest public observatory in the country at the time. And unfortunately, when we had the Black Forest fire, it was destroyed. But we worked, um, we taught K through 12 and also teacher recertification courses for a couple of the school districts in
0: Colorado Springs. Well then we're in a little bit of trouble because I took astronomy in in college as an undergraduate course and <laughs> I won't tell you my grade but the first number was a 2 <laughs> something so i you, you know i was fine until we started getting into quirks and quasars and i don't know what else just it got wild pretty fast so, it
1: does uh, get wild and actually yeah. i think that's the fun part the cosmological stuff that we're still trying to figure out i remember the day my professor said so an electron travels from one place to another place but it's never in between those two places I'm still thinking about
0: that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the universe and, 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 you know, I love the documentaries about it and everything, but boy, I mean, uh, I was like 4.4.4 point and then it started getting hard. <laughs> it was yes, like 1, yes. 1.8, 2.1. And so I managed to pass the class with an okay grade, but...
1: Well, good for you. you know, <laughs>
0: not, <laughs> It tanked my GPA, I'll tell you that. And But you were a piano teacher as well?
1: Yeah, I started playing piano when I was seven, and um, once I left corporate America, um, I still wanted an income, but I wanted to be home with the kids, so teaching piano seemed like the way to go, so I went back and studied piano pedagogy, and I'm probably mispronouncing that after all these years, Um, but it was a lot of fun working with the kids and putting on our recitals, so very different world from astronomy, but lots of fun.
0: Yeah, we're probably in trouble there too uh, musically. Uh, I struggle a bit. In fact, if you check out my bio, I I'm, I list myself as a tortured guitarist for a reason. <laughs> uh, music is hard. It's one of those things that people think that, you know, they're not really impressed with necessarily until they try it and realize how hard it is. It's like, uh, you know, like many things in life, it's harder than it looks.
1: You're you're so right. I think that's why there's a lot of guitars sitting in in the corner of people's rooms or the clarinet (laughs) or whatever instrument of choice. It it looks like it should be so easy. We all watch Mm. Bohemian Rhapsody, right? I can do that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I I feel like, uh, you know, you just have to know what your goals are. My goals are to be able to play and enjoy it and maybe not, Make my wife's ears bleed if I play for her or someone close to me, but that's about as far as it's ever get. But it's a joy, and if you get joy exactly. from it, you can suck at it and still have joy. Exactly. Um, <laughs> now you said you're in the corporate world. Is that where you did instructional design? Because oh, you have instructional designer as one of your past yes. jobs
1: so i started with digital equipment corporation and you know, i got that english degree and um, my parents said you know it's great that you want to be a writer why don't you be a technical writer because that pays <laughs> and so that's how i started in the corporate world and yeah then instructional design was that was so interesting because it was about human psychology how we mm-hmm. used to work on graphical user interfaces how do humans interact with this flat screen what what makes the most sense for the computer of course is not what necessarily works for how we interact which is why it was such a breakthrough when apple came up with the the concept of files and folders that emulated the physical world so that was a lot of fun
0: yeah whoever came up with that was was pretty smart um, but i want to ask you about probably the most absolutely of your of your <laughs> Of your jobs. I mean, Raptor Rehabilitator is cool. Astronomy is far out, pun intended. I, I, I'm impressed with the music because I've tried and I'm horrible at it. But I got to tell you, the one that, that raised my eyebrows and got my blood pumping was Sword Fighter. Now, what is behind that, Sword Fighter?
1: Oh, that started with my love of all things medieval. Uh, I think it started in high school and went on into college. And again, it was the Colorado Renaissance Festival. I worked doing shows that was mostly rapier fighting. So what you would see in the Three Musketeers mm-hmm. sort of yeah. thing. Um, I tried two-handed broadsword. That was my great love. But I am not a big woman. You put on some chain mail. You pick up two-handed broadsword mm-hmm. and... And ironically, in one hand, because you have to have a shield um, <laughs> So that I never could get proficient at that. I, I wasn't even particularly proficient at the rapier fighting, but but well enough to put on a good show.
0: So did sure. you did you compete in the uh, no, in I mean, we
1: did it, it was I and actually I competed um, outside of that medieval world, I competed at the Air Force Academy. Um, but. Oh, that's but right! The, I remember
0: you telling us that uh, at Left Coast. Oh, did we I? About that. Oh gosh! Yeah, yeah, that was that I'm was very cool.
1: Still living in the past, but but at the Renaissance Festival, it was competitive between us. But it was it was all show
0: for the Muggles. Well, that is quite a a background, and I have to imagine that it plays into uh, the writing that we're going to get to here now. And your main series is the Sydney uh, Parnell series. And Sydney is uh, an interesting character to me because um, she's railroad police. And a lot of people don't even realize that's a thing, much less, you know, write books about it. As uh, So what, what caused you to, you know, be aware of this and decide to feature that particular kind of cop in your books?
1: Sure. So, you know, I always love police procedurals because I love the science and I knew I wanted to do something different, but I had no idea what it what it would be. And because I, I'm an omnivore when it comes to reading, um, I'll read just about anything. Um, and this book came across my desk called Hobo by Eddie Joe Cotton. And it was the the memoir of a young man who ran away from home and started riding the rails. Um, and that was my first realization that we have modern day hobos. I had no idea. And then that, of course, led to the fact that we still have uh, railroad police, or bulls, or cinder dicks, as they're sometimes called. So that, <laughs> that's yeah. I've not, oh, not heard that one. <laughs> in that, fact, I have to. Tell that's you a one
0: dangerous out. one these days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's there is nothing politically correct about the about the railroad world and gutter punks and all that. And I I had to to laugh because I got a an email from a gentleman. He said, "I have worked for the rails for." For forty years, he said, and "I have to tell you, I've never met a cinder dick like Sydney Rose Parnell. I sure wish I had." <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so, and and I, I remember asking you this in in Vancouver as well. You were never a railroad cop,
1: no. Okay. Nor was I a marine, which Sydney mm-hmm. is also. So it was all research based.
0: But she doesn't just work by herself. Uh, she has a canine partner.
1: She does. She's got Clyde, who also served in Iraq, um, not with Sydney. He His handler was someone else. But when they both returned to the U.S., she was able to adopt Clyde, the military working dog. We've got a great program now for adopting these dogs back in the Vietnam War. The, and, and prior to that, the dogs were destroyed. Um, and now they're brought back and they're adopted into homes, um, if that's possible, depending on what the dog has been through so um so yeah i i it was a fun thing i started out researching post-traumatic stress disorder and veterans and then that led into the military working dogs um, so mm-hmm. it all kind of came
0: together you, you said post-traumatic stress disorder and and i actually had a guest in the that i interviewed recently that we spoke about it as well and uh i attended a a, a talk one time by a uh, Uh, Medal of Honor winner who uh, said, you know what? Mm -hmm. I do not think we should be calling it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. There is absolutely nothing disorderly about their reaction to stress.
1: It's uh, very normal.
0: So it should just be PTS and you're struggling with PTS and that's the way it is. I thought he had a a great point, but you know, you're kind of making another point here that Animals can, you know, suffer from post traumatic stress as well, and it sounds like maybe Clyde uh, had a had a tough time, just like uh, Sydney.
1: He did, and these dogs do. And I let me just take a hop sideways here, if I can. I just finished. I, I have a a series running on my blog about post traumatic stress, mm-hmm. and I just I'll be loading up the the next one in the series, and it looks at historically what terms we used for this, mm-hmm. um, yeah. whether it was exhaustion or nerves mm-hmm. and how, how these Shell shock, terms, battle fatigue. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So if, if readers are curious about how we've labeled it and what a step forward, even with the D added, the disorder added, what a huge step forward this is for veterans and other people who've been subjected to trauma. Um, I, I would recommend they take a look.
0: It makes uh, it uh, um, okay to acknowledge the way you're feeling as opposed to having to, you know, hide it or be ashamed of it or feel weak because of it.
1: Yes. It's finally being recognized as a perfectly normal response to either seeing something traumatic or being involved in something traumatic. It's what, it's what our biology tells us to do. Um, So it's, it's great to see this turnaround. I think it's still difficult for veterans to acknowledge um, or to come forward for help because of the military culture, but it is getting so much better.
0: So what did Sydney do as a Marine and what kind of canine was Clyde? Cause uh, canine is kind of an all encompassing term, but the dogs, you know, are, are trained to do different things.
1: Yeah. So Clyde, um, Clyde's a Belgian Malinois, which is mm-hmm. the kind of strong dog... breed. <laughs> yes. Yes. But also, Very driven. They have that strong prey drive, which is a criterion for military working dogs, um, and very smart. They're not as bulky as the German Shepherds. So special forces uses them because they can they can um, jump out of helicopters with them. And, and at Cairo was a Belgian Malinois. That was the dog that went in after Osama bin Laden. Um, and so Clyde was trained as both uh, bomb detection and also um, trained to find the people behind the bombs. He was a dual purpose dog. Yeah. Yeah, And I not every dog um,
0: can do that. That's a that's a
1: no, no, but these, these dogs who can, it's pretty amazing. And actually, I was speaking with one of the dog handlers from the Air Force Academy. And he said, pretty much whatever you, you could imagine them doing, they can be trained to do. So I've had fun with that. I've introduced a new trainer. Uh, in the third book for Clyde, and it's a gentleman who used to train the the dog. It's a character um, who used to train the dogs for Mossad in in Israel. So he's mm-hmm. got a few tricks up his sleeve, and so I, I can give Clyde a few tricks mm-hmm. up his furry sleeve. And as for Sydney, she worked in mortuary affairs, processing the dad. So, oh
0: man, that yeah, sucks. that was
1: that was a difficult task for these men and women who served a lot of them were from the reserves the national guard and they had received training as infantry or a variety of other tasks but they ended up in mortuary affairs doing what i think is is the most difficult job and it was not only the the devastation of handling these severely injured bodies but also they went out they didn't stay on base they went out to collect the bodies oh
0: man that's so
1: yeah so they had war exposure sometimes the insurgents would wait for them to show up Mm -hmm. as we all know right the second wave of bombing comes after the the first responders show up so um yeah so she had battle trauma as well as the difficulty of of handling the dead but she also saw it as an honor
0: you know, that that reminds me of a, a, an HBO movie that Kevin Bacon was in called Taking Chance. Have you seen that?
1: I have not. But now that you say that, I remember it's on my list and I love Kevin yeah. Bacon.
0: I, I highly recommend it. It was uh, better than I thought it was going to be. And I thought it was going to be good. I, I was very moved by it. And, and then objectively speaking, I thought it was very, very well written directed, acted. I mean, it was a good piece of film. Is that film.
1: the movie where he's escorting the body back?
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, and there's a little bit of a twist to it. I mean, it's not a mystery or anything, but there's a little bit of a twist that uh, creates a little extra conflict uh, that's, that I thought was pretty smart. But uh, it, it, you know, it explores some of the things that you just got through talking about, uh, particularly with post-traumatic stress and with honoring the dead. And and uh, I, yeah, I was very moved by it. I'll take a look. Thanks. You. So your first book starring uh sydney um well let me back up she becomes railroad police now how does that happen because cops don't know that there are railroad cops out there hardly any better than the public (laughs) does so how did she end up figuring out that that was the niche that she wanted to be
1: yeah that's interesting because because they actually train together a lot of the the police departments but um like a lot of railroaders sydney comes from a family of railroaders you'll find that Fathers and sons, usually not women as much, but sometimes daughters as well. So when she returned from Iraq, her whole plan was to find a job where she didn't have to interact much with people and, and could get out into the open spaces away from the city. So it was a natural choice for her and a natural choice for Clyde as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are canines who work work with the railroad police, so it was a good fit.
0: And where is she based? denver mm-hmm.
1: yeah so the railroad you know i created a fictional railroad but it's it's based on a mix of bnsf the burlington northern santa fe line and then union pacific mm-hmm. so it was fun getting to work with um, a police a railroad cop from bnsf and um some other railroad operators from up and learning learning their world because it's a it is an interesting world
0: yeah i i interacted with them occasionally as a or
1: you uh, hop in trains officer. frank
0: <laughs> no, no 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 i was uh you know would cross paths with them on the job sometimes um and uh, uh the interesting thing to me was as a municipal police officer you have a certain set of concerns and your world is shaped a certain way and then you know you find out the people who police in rural areas have a little different approach and a little different you know, their world is a little different. Then you go to talk to railroad police and it's, you know, it's, it's removed, you know, one step further from your experience. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was always interesting to me when I interacted with them. Um, And so your the first book in this series is called blood on the tracks, right?
1: Yes. And I, and I hasten to, to point out for some people who've kind of poked fun at that title. um, It is the title of a Bob Dylan album. So nobody gets to put fun at it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's a it's a police procedural. I mean, it, it's a good title for a police procedural. And the fact that the, there's a Dylan reference there, I mean, that just makes it more poetic, if you ask me. Um, yeah, I
1: kind of had this thought I would use um, rock and roll titles for all of my books. But marketing said ixnay on that. Because whenever you enter blood on the tracks, for some reason that Dylan dude comes up the yeah, first thing yeah, search. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I guess that would put you further down in the in the, in the search engine, wouldn't it? Right. Um, but uh, that that book uh, was actually optioned, so there's a possibility we may see it as a film someday or a TV series.
1: Yeah, it was. It was actually looking pretty exciting with the with the people expressing interest. But of course, everything is now on hold nobody can film
0: yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird time we're recording this uh the first week of may and uh you know we've been on quarantine here in central oregon for a couple of months now and i assume for you in colorado as well
1: the same here yes Mm -hmm. we just came off we've been at the stay at home and now we're we've shifted to safer at home so we'll see how the numbers do
0: Talking about numbers here, the, n- the number is four. That's how many books there are in this series. And I want to get to the big news, uh, number four, in a second here. But real quickly, I want to touch on. So uh, what is the elevator description of each of these first three? Blood on the Tracks is the first one.
1: <laughs> I laugh because once I finish a novel, I just flush. In um, the first book... It involves the hobo community. A woman who worked with the hobos is found dead in her home. And it starts to look like it might have had something to do with um, what Sydney... There were some strange things that happened in Iraq, and it looked like it might be linked to that. And then it also pulls in this this underground world of rail riders, the the neo-Nazis. So... These threads kind of cross all while Sydney and Clyde are trying to to cope with their post traumatic stress. So that's book one. Book two,
0: not a rock and roll. Uh, it is t- a it's a
1: railroad term, dead stop. Um, it's like
0: a terminal stop at the end of the line, or what is it?
1: All kinds of things, but of course we're most familiar with it as a road term, right? You know, oh, we're at a dead stop. So that book, I wanted to get away from the whole Iraq background. It's an independent mystery. Uh, there's a home invasion, a little girl goes missing. Um, and Sydney's called on the case because um, her mother also disappeared from the home and is and is found on the tracks. So yeah, it's her search for this kidnapped girl and and the killer. And then the third book, Ambush, I, I was laughing because with each title, we cut the number of words in half.
0: Oh, that's true. And so that's I thought true. I was going to have
1: to use a symbol for the fourth book, <laughs> you know, sort of the prince thing. The book formerly
0: <laughs> like, known as uh, Sydney. <laughs> yes, Murrell.
1: exactly. Um, so in Ambush, I, I had intended for the Iraq subplot to kind of run through the series, sort of like the Smoking Man. and, and um
0: like Smiles. Uh,
1: thank you. I was, having a, I was having a moment there, um, yes, in X-Files, but it was too hard for me, at least, to sustain it. So I tied off all of the backstory in the third book, which really made it more of a thriller than a classic police mystery. Um, but that was a lot of fun. So that involves Iran and our relationship with that and the, and the military industrial complex and also our relationship with Saudi Arabia. So researching that was a
0: was a hoot. You know, that brings up an interesting point. I mean, I don't want to get too inside baseball, but I mean, then again, this is a writer's podcast. But, you know, you're writing a series and, you know, every time, you know, we we met at a conference, every time you go to a conference, what is one uh, panel you always see? How to keep a series fresh. I mean, there's one at every single conference I've been to. Uh, yeah. you know and and that's because it's a it's a legitimate concern i mean uh I suppose there are some audiences out there and there are some series out there series is how do you say that plural series. <laughs> um I- I'm sure there are <laughs> and it wasn't in astronomy either um <laughs> But, you know, there are some out there that maybe people don't care. They just want, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat. And that's really, truly what they want. Mm -hmm. But most people will grow bored with the series. I mean, even the series as great as Sue Grafton's Alphabet um, series, I have talked to some people who... At a certain point in that series, they had to take a break at the very least because it it, it became a little bit repetitive at, at some point. And so how do you keep a series fresh? And I think what you've hit on is just awesome because you're changing up the format a little bit. I mean, you've got a couple of police procedurals followed by a thriller procedural. And that might just be enough to keep it fresh for the readers so that they don't get bored with the whole concept.
1: It is interesting that I've been thinking about that, the, the balance between people who want something that's familiar and comfortable, you know, it's like picking up your same snack food when you, when you mm-hmm. go to the movies mm-hmm. versus people who want change. And you can, you can see by the reviews, how people feel. Um, sometimes they are not comfortable when you sort of shift mystery to thriller or, or move the world around a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I'm, I'm not a good series reader because I do like the variety. So for me as a writer, and I suspect Sue Grafton would say the same thing. I seem to recall an interview with her at some point saying, why did I pick the alphabet? (laughs) 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 There's too many letters.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, she did change things up. I mean, it wasn't. I don't think it was a terminal lull by any means. Uh, uh, I just think that it it got low ish enough for some readers to take a break and then come back to it. And then she did some things a little differently. If I recall Ah. that that just a little bit, but this Mm -hmm. has been on my mind a lot lately because of the struggles I've had with my most recent book and, uh, and, and, one of the struggles I had with it was that it's structured so very differently than the previous five, and one of my co-authors said, "You know what? Why do people read River City? You know, why do they read Sydney Parnell? It's for the characters. Yeah, they, they they care about Sydney. They care about Clyde. You know, they care about the characters in your series, and so." that gave me the courage to say, you know what, this is the format of this book. I'm going to go with it. And if it's different, it's different. And if people like it less than the previous ones, or it's their favorite, whatever, it's the way the story has to be told. And you're here for the characters. Like, you know, you're here for the junior mints, you know, it might be a comedy. It might, <laughs> might be a, you know, it might be an Indiana Jones movie. It might be, this might be a, Fright night you know whatever but you're here for the you know you still get your 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 junior mints and you can put them in your N- popcorn nice like analogy
1: yes nice analogy frank i'm just rolling with um an extended metaphor i think for us as writers to to keep our own interest or to challenge ourselves mm-hmm. to become better writers um i don't think we want to rubber stamp things either
0: if you're writing the series and you get bored, I just, you know, boy, that comes through. Uh, That's a, a
1: bad sign. Yes, uh, you're right.
0: You, you can't fake sincerity as a writer. You can't fake interest <laughs> as a writer. I agree. All right. No more inside baseball. Let's talk grand openings here. You do have a fourth Sydney Pardonell book coming out in June. Uh, what's that one called?
1: It's called Gone to Darkness, so I'm back up to four syllables.
0: Just Maybe that's the rotation. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, and actually, this is another departure. Um, the plan had never been with my publisher to leave Sydney on the rails, and I may at some point take her back there because I still have so many railroad-related ideas, so many. Um, but for now... She has, um, because of her fame and the, the, the cases she solved in the previous three books, she and Clyde um, have been transitioned to Denver's major crimes unit. Mm-hmm. And she's working her first case officially as a homicide detective. And she gets paired with a character I introduced in the first book, um, Detective Lynn Bandoni, who was her nemesis. So now the two of them are stuck together um, trying to solve this case. But I do still have railroads in there the first victim is found on a refrigerated train car. Um, He's been tortured. There's been these mysterious symbols carved into his body. um, And and the hunt is on.
0: Mm. And this is out June 2nd. You know, people maybe don't know about railroad police. They maybe know a little bit about canine. What are some things uh, before we go that people might be surprised to learn about this. Like, what is the jurisdiction of the railroad police? Would you know? I mean, you would assume the railroads, but how does that work?
1: Well, it, they do have the same jurisprudence as traditional police, but their territory is typically a hundred feet wide and thirty-five thousand miles long. So
0: it's <laughs> sort of different. So what
1: I did um, with Sydney was I paired her up with a Denver homicide detective, so that she wasn't stuck on the rails.
0: Mm-hmm. What did you learn about the canine police or, or about having a canine or anything to do with that experience that people might be unaware of or that surprised you?
1: I don't know that that it surprised me, but in fact, it's what I expected. But it was one of the, the loveliest things I saw is the bond between the handlers mm-hmm. and their dogs. Um, and if there was a Colorado Springs Canine handler um, who was hilarious. He was he was given a Belgian Malinois who who sometimes don't look anything like their their the Renn Ten Ten German Shepherd dog. Um, he's like I got the ugliest dog <laughs> 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 on the entire police force, um, and it was he took the dog home and it was just love at first sight between his son and this dog. Um, he the dog really became a member of the family and. Um, this cop was always making jokes about, oh, the dog loves my, my wife and the kids better than me and all this. But you could see <laughs> the love between
0: them. Yeah, that was the, the thing that stood out to me. Uh, I was fortunate enough when I was a lieutenant to uh, be assigned to command the canine unit. I'd never been a handler. So that's always rough, obviously, you come in to command a unit of elite individuals and yes. you were never an operator of right. you never did what they did and and there's really only one way to approach that, and that is as a student as you, you come in humble and you ask to learn and uh, and boy, those guys were those was all guys at the time, or actually, I take that back uh, they had five patrol dogs and two drug dogs. And one of the drug dog handlers was a, uh, was a woman, uh, oh, yeah. but the whole unit, every, every member was just great about teaching the dumb Lieutenant, you know, um, about the dogs, about how they worked, about why they did what they did, why they did it the way they did. And of course there was method to the madness. I mean, my job was to make it possible for them to do their job. So the more I learned about what they needed, the more intelligently I could argue why we needed this tool or this money or this training or whatever it was uh, to, you know, to my bosses, to the captains and above. Um, But I was, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that's such a great approach. Um, So kudos to you for that. And I think it's, it's a great approach to life. Just when we don't know something, say, Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I want to
0: learn. Well, people are, you know, they were a group of people that were, uh, I used the word elite, and I meant it. And they knew a lot about their craft. And if you approach people that way, they tend to be very willing to share what they know because they're excited about their are passionate, they're proud. And so I learned a ton, and and it was fascinating. But what you said, that bond, that and the dedication of the officers in general, I can't. I, I mean, I had yes. to. I had to informally, never formally, but informally reprimand them for working for free all the time they would do stuff you know on their own time i'm not talking about playing catch with the dog i'm talking about they would sneak to training sessions and help train other people and not put in an ot card and and i have to tell them you know that's a violation of labor law you're gonna Mm -hmm. you know i mean you can't do that you need to be paid for this so let me try to get it to where you know you could. but they the money was secondary or tertiary to them it was dedication to the to the dogs and to the other handlers and everything and 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 the bond between the dog and the handler regardless of whether it was a patrol dog or a, a drug dog it didn't matter uh-huh. and they bonded with their with their handlers just as tightly as the patrol dogs that were out tracking and and biting a few people occasionally that almost every one of them deserved <laughs> it Mike usually
1: i'm usually the handler's <laughs> very unwilling um the, this cop I, I worked with in colorado springs he, he would plead, please come out don't make me send my dog in after you <laughs>
0: <laughs> i always i always loved the way that they would say you know attention in the building or in the room or wherever it was yes. you know uh you know this is this police where you have a Please, canine. We're going to release him if you don't come out. If he finds you, he will bite you. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty effective. I uh, sometimes people gave up. Sometimes they didn't believe you, and they found out that it wasn't a joke. The hard you know. way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In
1: fact, I have a scene like that in my latest book.
0: Oh, that's great. I, I'll look forward to that. So, Gone to Darkness. What is the plot? Or what is the premise of that book?
1: So it's a it's a mix of threads. You know, the science fiction writer Damon Knight always said, "Have at least." two different threads that you pull into your stories so I looked at uh, the whole first of all the whole world of invisible workers um, people who work on farms or as night shift janitors or in packing plants which lately Mm -hmm. has been in the news with coronavirus so kind of that thread and then I looked up uh, looked at the pickup artist community uh, which is a fascinating world. I read a book called The Game by Neil Strauss. He, mm-hmm. he kind of did an expose on that whole pickup artist or seduction community. And, and it's fascinating to, to watch these young men decide how the dating game can and, and should be played. And then I, I actually pulled in a third thread, which is the world of comics. Um, and this group called Social Justice Warriors there was there was this whole incident of Comics Gate where there was a backlash against women working in the comics world, either as as artists or as support. Um, so so sure. all of those kind of came together to form this this mix. It was a lot
0: of fun. Wow, that's a very eclectic mix of threads.
1: <laughs> it's how my mind <laughs> works, or doesn't work. I'm not sure.
0: Well, Gone to Darkness, the fourth Sydney Parnell book, will be out June second. And uh, I've I've got to go back and pick up Blood on the Tracks. I am a terrible host. I've I've yet to dive into your work. Uh, It's been on my TBR list for, uh, well, uh, over a year now. So that gives you an idea how backed up that is. Um,
1: I've got the same stack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a feeling my books just moved further down the stack by admitting this. (laughs) But uh, but but it is on my list for sure. Uh, I just no, actually just started in on uh, on Deb Koontz's uh, Lucky O'Tool series, so you can see I am getting close uh, to catching up. Uh, Good to, to a year and a half. Ago. <laughs> You'll enjoy.
1: Well, it's it's the world. I there are too many so many books, so little time. It's mm-hmm. how it mm-hmm. is. Uh,
0: well. I'll look forward to it and it's got a lot of things I'm interested in, so I'm sure I'll enjoy it. And I've certainly enjoyed having you on the show. Um, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, Frank. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, there you are folks. A pretty good picture of Barb necklace, a really cool lady and writes an interesting series. And I was glad I finally got to talk to her next episode. Graham, we're going to talk to Tom Pitts and his new book, cold water, as well as some of his other work. Uh, Real quick Zephyro update for you. Uh, A couple of days ago, Down Comes the Night, uh, launched from Down and Out Books. That is episode 12 of A Grifter's Song. Uh, If you don't know, A Grifter's Song is a uh, serial novella anthology. In other words, every episode is uh, either a very long short story all the way up to novella length... Featuring Sam and Rachel, a pair of grifters who love each other and the game, uh, but everybody else is kind of up for grabs. Uh, They go from adventure to adventure, con to con, some they win, some they lose, uh, all the while pursued by a vengeful Philadelphia mob. Um, I wrote the first episode ever of this, and every subsequent episode uh, was written by a different author set in a different location, different points of view. Very, keeps it very fresh. This season, season two, saw Eric Pruitt, Awesome Maria Bradley, Holly West, Eric Biedner, and Scott Eubanks for the first five episodes of the season. And episode 12, the season finale, Down Comes the Night, uh, uh, kind of caps it all off. You can get any of those uh, by themselves. Uh, or you can subscribe and get all six of them at a discount, which pretty much equals getting one for free. Uh, and then you get another one for free because subscribers get a subscriber-only bonus story that is exclusive just to the subscribers. And uh, this one, the, it's called The Reckoner, kind of takes a look at all the events of the season through a different set of eyes, and you find out some things might not be exactly as you think they are if you haven't read that particular story. So you can go to Downout Books. Dot com to uh, sign up. Uh, there are links also on my website, franksafiro.com. That came out on June 1st. Have some other stuff coming out later this month and later this summer, but we'll save that for a different episode. I want to say thanks to Barb for coming on the show, Down Out Books for being a great sponsor, and to you, the listener. Uh, for firing up the podcast and giving it a listen, that's the whole reason why we're, why I'm here and doing this. Only two more episodes for season three, and uh, in the last episode, we'll make a little bit of an announcement about season four that I think will be a little exciting for some people. Tom Pitts on the next show. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.